You're listening to teaching from the Word of God, provided by Black Forest Chapel. This is the church where you will find biblical teaching and authentic worship with family and friends. We are located in Black Forest near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs, Colorado. We invite you to join us this Sunday. Find our location, worship times, and more at blackforestchapel.org. I was here about 8.20 this morning, and I didn't see a bunch of families coming at 9 o'clock, so it looks like everybody got their uh, clocks all turned correctly, turned the right way. So that's a good thing. Enjoyed the extra hour of sleep this morning. Well, we're going to worship the Lord together, so. Through every battle, through every heartbreak, through every circumstance, I believe that you are my fortress. You are my portion, you are my hiding place, I believe you are the way, the truth. Stay long when I believe you are the way, 
This is our time again where we acknowledge our tithes and offerings as part of our worship. You can give online at blackforestchapel.org or there are two freshly painted, I believe, boxes in the back. They're looking good. So, <clears throat> Scripture reading this morning, Psalm 9, 1 through 2. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High.
on your throne, God. We praise you this morning. Amen. Good morning. I'm Amy Kilgore, and I have the blessing of planning youth group events at Black Forest Chapel. This past Friday night, we had 34 youths attend a mystery night, which was a live whodunit mystery, basically a live version of the game of Clue, and it was so much fun. All of us who were... um, Participants, we dressed up as our characters, and then the youth had to find out who done it, which first round was actually me. Second round, I don't recall who it was, but we it was Jeff. <laughs> we had a wonderful time. Not only did we have 34 kids, we had a great message from Scott Barbie about um, having trust in the Lord in these trying times, both with COVID and, of course, around Halloween. I hope to get some pictures sent out to you in our weekly announcement. So if that all works, look for that on Thursday. And now join me in watching a video for Operation Christmas Child. I've never been out of the country, but because of Operation Christmas Child, I am a international missionary. You feel like you're doing your job or what God has called you to do when you see that unity of other people fellow believers coming together in one common cause. Knowing that we're making a difference, knowing that we get to make a global difference together, and it unites the local churches together, both in the states and internationally. At the same time, it's getting people locally to think globally. It's a simple way for people to think about the world, and not just think about it, but actually do something. Every single shoebox is a child who's meeting Christ. And just remembering the importance of every box and really just leaving the rest of it to God. The work of Operation Christmas Child is having quite a big impact. Jesus loves you. A box is not just a gift in the hands of the local pastors these boxes can be used as a tool to touch a whole community. they never seen that someone care for them, someone give for them. When I see a smile face of a children, just like inspiring me to serve ministry. They are not only getting these gift boxes, but they also get the greatest gift booklet that they can take home and read that Jesus is the greatest gift of all. From the inside, I want to say thank you for OCC. Thank you for a beautiful time. So thank you so much. Uh, We intentionally invest a lot of time in training our team in order to make sure that the gospel is clearly communicated throughout our outreach events and the greatest journey classroom. 
We want to disciple to make a, a stronger foundation of empowering the new generation. They know the story of God, and they can tell others by using the books. Every shoebox is really the beginning of the journey of evangelism and discipleship, and that leads into multiplication, and the multiplication of lives, the multiplication of churches, really impact on communities and a ripple effect around the world. You begin the process as you pack a shoebox. We, we value shoebox, and we thank you for the, the hand who packs the box. We're part of a team, and we're partners in the gospel through Operation Christmas Child and through Samaritan's Purse. What an amazing opportunity, especially this time when we're not traveling to have global impact. Join us, join Black Forest Chapel in our goal of reaching 100 packed shoeboxes. You can go online and pack a shoebox. You can grab an empty box in the lobby and pack one with your family. Bring it back by November 22nd. Or you can join us on November 14th from 1 to 4. Stop by any time and pack a shoebox. Exciting news this week is that we have two great donations. One is a toothbrush. We have 100 toothbrushes donated by Sheila Hartle from her dental practice. Everyone who, I agree, <laughs> feel free to grab one, put it in your shoebox. We'll have those available at the packing party as well. Second item is a soccer ball and a pump. These are amazing items. You don't know the excitement that comes to a kid's face when they get a soccer ball. Most of our boxes go to Mexico. Soccer's big down there. So we have uh, 99 of these. You are welcome to grab a ball and a pump, put it in your shoebox that you pack at home, come to the packing party, we, we will have them there as well. Last is that um, I need to leave right after the service, so Hannah Barbie will be at the table out there. She'll answer any questions, stand up Hannah and wave. Thank you. Feel free to direct all questions to her. And with all of these details, they're just details. The biggest, most important thing is to pray. We already have two boxes turned in and think about the kids who will receive them. Pray for those kids that their lives will be impacted for eternity. Thank you to everyone who has donated items, boxes, and plans to join us for the backing party. Good morning, church. Thank you, Amy, and all the volunteers uh, for helping us with this initiative. Amy, how many do we have so far? Do you know? Yeah. We have two out of 100? Oh, well, we're going to have to fix that today. Um. I know there's still a little bit of time, but please grab your box and, and, and uh, fill it up for these kids. Once again, um, this is not just about some necessities, some fun things, some good things. I mean, toothbrushes are awesome. Soccer balls are awesome. I'm saying toothbrushes are awesome for the benefit of my wife. But she was also a soccer player, so it's like a Sheila box to me. It's the whole thing's together. But we also are giving away God's word to those who might not have heard. And so um, not just to the, to the young kids who are receiving the boxes, but to their families, to the people around them. I forget what it was. There were some statistics last year about the number of people that actually hear the gospel per box, and it was amazing. It really changed my perspective on this whole thing. So uh, please, this is, I love the gentleman. He said he's an international missionary um, because he's packing this box and sending it off. So please go ahead and grab those and get them filled up and be part of our packing party and and bring those back. We'd like to see all those stacked up here, and we'd like to pray over those as we send them uh, pretty soon. So thank you, Amy, for, for doing that. 
and everyone's here on time. That's good today, and I was told I have an extra hour to preach. Um, I'm seeing lots of no's. No? Okay. I will restrain myself. Let's pray as we open God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your presence in our life. I can't thank you enough that you are with us, that you created us, you loved us, you saved us, you've called us to a new life as your people, where we get to spend eternity with you because of your son Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. And I think, Lord, we often take these things for granted. We tend to be a forgetful people, as you have said in the scriptures. And so thank you for helping us, Lord, to remember through gathering, through worship, through study. And even today, Lord, as we look at your Passover and then uh, your table, the Lord's Supper, as points of remembrance for your people. Or thank you for, for providing those for us. We need those things. Forgive us for our forgetfulness, Lord. And this morning, as you open our minds back up to the truth of your word, to the, the great salvation that you've provided, Lord, may we live differently as we walk out of this place. Thank you for the, just, there is a spirit of celebration in here this morning, Father, and that's because of you. That's because of what you have done. We're so thankful, Father. So now, Lord, as we open your word, please open our minds to understand, to receive. Holy Spirit, help us. Help me to be clear, Father. May your people be blessed and help us to ultimately, Lord, obey and to apply this to our lives for our good and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, uh, please open to Exodus chapter 12. We're in a series in the book of Exodus, the, the great deliverance of God's people in the Old Testament, which is really a foreshadow of the great deliverance of his people in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. We're delivered by putting our faith in the blood of Christ who covered our sins, who paid for our sins, he atoned for our sins. And so we're, as, we, as we walk through Exodus, it's a book to be remembered. God wants to be remembered through this. And he establishes many points in the Old Testament where he refers back to this event, to this great salvation. Because really, even though they are his people, they have not really been able to act like his people. They have not been able to serve him, to worship him properly, because they've been in captivity for over 400 years. They've been in bitter, harsh slavery and so God is bringing them out for the purpose of being able to serve him, to worship him, to bring him glory as he would, as he would um, have designed it. And so this exodus has a great purpose, and God is not only bringing his people out and saving them, he is judging the Egyptians. He is judging Pharaoh. So God is, as we've been talking about the doctrine of God, he is manifesting all of his amazing attributes at one time. Right? He's bringing glory to himself. He's manifesting his... His, this great salvation through, through judgment and through righteousness, but also through mercy and through grace and through love and his faithfulness and his great sovereign power he is establishing as he does these mighty wonders and works in Egypt as he brings his people out. So we've been walking through the plagues, watching the God of creation show that he is truly Lord of everything. He is the only true God. All these false gods are being judged at the moment. And so he's, we're, we're ready for the final plague. We talked about it last week. It was being threatened. Moses threatened the final plague, and Pharaoh's not very happy, obviously. And he, in one final kind of fit of rebellion, said, I better not, if you see my face again, Moses, you're going to die. Right? He's trying to engage his, his own pseudo-deity, if you will, his own perception of his godness, that he has the power over life and death. And he does not, and God's going to prove that only... He, the great I am, the true God, the God of Israel, has the power over life and death, not Pharaoh. 
so we've been walking through this together, and, and, and in preparation of this great exodus that's to come, God is establishing a new memorial for his people, the Passover. And so this morning's sermon is the Passover, have faith and remember. These are the two components, the two themes kind of running through this text that I've seen. So have faith and remember. They are to have faith in what? In God and his protection. They are to have faith in the blood of the lamb, which is the cover of their doorposts. And they are to also remember. And we're going to see a great tie, once again, a foreshadowing into New Testament theology, the grace of cov- the covenant of grace and um, the sacrifice of Jesus, the truly the Lamb of God. And we're going to take communion together as a body at the end of the service as part of our application to remember. So that will be coming toward the end. Let's read uh, chapter 12 together, verses 1 through 32. This is really, it's hard to break this up. There's, this whole section really goes through the middle of chapter 13. Um, but for your sake and for mine, maybe, I'm not going to read all of that this morning. We're just going to read through verse 32, and then we'll pick it up next week um, and continue on. Let's read God's word together. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish a male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold an assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt." Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. 
you shall eat nothing leavened. And all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. Touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. So a lot of stuff going on here, a big passage. We're going to focus on a couple things. Number one, the idea of faith in the blood. And the second is the idea of remembrance. And what are the importance of these things? The first section here is obviously a continuation. Uh, The final plague is threatened. And God is preparing his people. He knows what he's about to do. He already told Pharaoh he was going to do this at the beginning. He said, "This is my first, Israel is my firstborn son. Let, let my son go. If not, I will kill your firstborn son. And Pharaoh, through the hardening of his heart and through God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart, would not let them go. And it was God's purpose. And we talked about the doctrine of election last week. And that this was always purposed for God to show his glory, to show who he is. And so by making a distinction of his people, God is teaching both the Israelites and the Egyptians the doctrine of election. In this passage, what we see is God teaching everyone involved the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of sin. And ultimately, we're going to see Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, we've been saved by grace through faith. We're going to see this same principle established here, that the Israelites are going to be saved by God's grace, providing a means through their faith. This is the first time they actually, they actually have to act in faith, right? We've watched all of the other plagues happen, and Israel was just able to put up their lawn chairs and kind of sit over in Goshen and just watch this thing, right? And watch these crazy acts of, of God's plagues come through with all of the, the, the blood of the Nile and the frogs and the weirdness of that and all the flies and the gnats and the hail. And we talked about how does, how does that work could, could, could kids stand on the edge of the, the Goshen County line and, right, and see hail just falling right in front of them? As, it was just to be amazing to watch all this in darkness. How, how is it all of Egypt was cast into a darkness that could be felt, and yet Egypt was, was immune from that? How does that even work? But God did all of these great things, all these miracles and all these wonders, and his people were protected, and they didn't have to do anything. They just had to wait and be patient. But now this is the first one where they have to actively participate, right? They were probably a little shocked at the fact that they had, to, <laughs> they had to do something at all. You want us to do what? And what? what? What are you talking about, Lord? 
And does, does that mean we're in danger here? If we don't do this, are you, are you coming for us too? That's exactly what's taking place. The destroyer, the angel of death, God's wrath is coming in judgment on sinful man. And whoever does not have the blood of a lamb on their doorposts and on the lintel, and they're in that house, as God has said, whoever does not have that blood, God will not see the blood, and God will invoke his wrath, and their firstborn would die. And so this was a little bit more serious, right? They had to take this seriously. So God gave them directions. He was very specific. He was very gracious in that. But they had to actually have trust and faith in this blood that God has provided. And why blood? Well, blood has always been uh, what was necessary to atone for sin, right? What are the, the wages of sin? Is what is death. We see this in Romans 6. It's death. Because of sin, the payment for us all is death. We will pay for our own sins with the wrath of God, eternal punishment and judgment in hell forever. And so unless someone is a substitute for us, unless some other blood is taken on our behalf to atone for our sins, to appease the wrath of God, unless there is some other blood, we, are, we will die in our sins. And so God is making a provision. He's, but, but the lamb, the blood, has always been part of Scripture. If you look back at Cain and Abel, Cain provided a sacrifice that was, that was based off the land. Abel's sacrifice was better because it was what? It was a sacrifice of an animal. Abraham and Isaac, Isaac was, was told to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, who was the son of the promise. And he, and he prepared to do so by faith. And Isaac asked, well, where's the, where's the lamb, Father? And Abraham said, well, God will provide. Right? And God did. He stopped Abraham, Isaac was removed from the altar, and there was a substitute in his place. So we see this, this happening throughout Scripture. Now we're seeing that, that a lamb will cover and will satisfy the wrath of God for a household, anyone in that home. Right? Ultimately, as, as we move forward in the, in the progress of, of the history of Israel, we see that the priests will sacrifice lambs on the Day of Atonement for the nation. Right? We, see a, we see an atonement for the entire nation because of the blood of the lamb. But ultimately, when you read this throughout Hebrews, the, the, the blood of bulls and of goats and of lambs, they, they were never to be a permanent solution to man's sinful dilemma. Right? Ultimately, there needed to be a better sacrifice, and that was Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who came away to take away the sins of the world. His sacrifice was once for all. Because why? Because otherwise you had to keep doing the sacrifices over and over and over again because man kept sinning over and over and over again. But Jesus' sacrifice covered and so this blood, there's life in the blood. When blood is spilled, there is death, and that pays for sin. And God provided a way by his grace through, this, through these lambs. And they would, they would take the hyssop and put the blood on the doorpost, and they had to go in. And can you imagine knowing that the destroyer, the angel of death, God himself, was coming through in this plague and watching what God had done through all these other plagues? And you had to sit in your home, and I don't know what they, what they would have heard or, or what the noise was besides the great cry in all of Egypt. But to sit there and put faith in some blood on some wood. Can you imagine doing that? And they've never done that before. Remember, these are career slaves. They've been institutionalized, if you will. They've, they've, no, they've known nothing but captivity. They don't understand even what this freedom is going to fully mean, even though they've cried out for it. Over 400 years, these generations have passed, and the, these people only know slavery. They only know harsh, bitter service. And, but they're crying out, and they're getting to know their God. And they had to trust him. They had to put their faith in this blood, this provision. Nothing that they've done on their, they didn't earn this. They didn't do anything on their own except for obey God and believe in him. So it is by grace that they've been saved. 
And they, and they go in their homes and they, they roast the lamb and they consume it along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And this is the first Passover. And God is instituting a memorial, an annual remembrance of what he has done, this great exodus, this great deliverance. Right? But also he is invoking an offering for sin. He's showing them the doctrine of sin that needs to be atoned for. So we see that Moses calls this the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover too. And so why, why a lamb and why a perfect lamb? Well, as we, as we kind of look through the first section there, um, God is doing new things. This is the first month of the, of the new Hebrew calendar. This will be a beginning for them because it's going to be, they will be a new people in a new place serving their God outside of slavery. So he's establishing this and he's establishing the time. And on the 10th day, they shall take a lamb according to their father's houses and they keep it in the house, right? It needs to be a lamb without blemish, a male, a year old. So we see this also in Hebrews. Um, there's, there's an idea of, of giving God our best, right? Not just God, we don't give God our leftovers, we give God our best. And so the lamb shouldn't be, it shouldn't be crippled, it shouldn't be blind, it shouldn't have sores or scars on it. The lamb should be without blemish. Why? Because God's holy, he deserves the best. And what's interesting is uh, you bring the lamb in, so they're supposed to bring the lamb in on the 10th day, and then on the 14th day is when they actually kill the lamb. Right? So you've got four days there to hang out with this lamb. And, and a lot of scholars believe that there is a purpose even in that. Why not just pick one the day of, right? We're, <clears throat> we're so used to the kind of the fast food environment, we can just get stuff on the day of unless people start, you know, taking toilet paper again and going crazy in the stores. Usually we can get stuff on the day that we need it. Why, why that? Well, one, one, one thing is you want to make sure that you have um, a lamb without blemish. But a lot of people believe that there was something about... Um, getting to know the lamb, even the firstborns, even the kids, getting to know this lamb, naming it, call, you know, making it part of the little family, and then on the fourth day, you're slaughtering it. And there's there's a there's an abruptness to that. There's a there's a great teaching moment of that. This is the seriousness of sin. It requires death. It requires blood. And this lamb is protecting this family from the wrath of God. So there's there's a lot of meaning built up in that. Regardless of the number of days, the lamb is slaughtered. And they had to make sure they followed God's instructions fully. As we think about Jesus as the perfect lamb, as a replacement for animal sacrifice, was he really perfect? Does the Bible actually say that he was perfect? Was he, was he without blemish? And the Bible does teach that. Number one, in John one i I'm just going to give you a few scriptures you can jot down if you like. John one twenty nine. John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus walking by, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What an amazing statement to a, to a Jewish people that have to continually appease the wrath of God or, or celebrate what God has done through this Passover as they wait for their Messiah to come. And he has now come, and he will take away the sins of the world. Revelation 5.12 says, Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He's completely worthy. First Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, Jesus. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He committed no sin. Second Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 4.15, he's a high priest who was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. And Hebrews 9.14, he was without blemish. He's the perfect lamb. 
Sin entered the world through one man, if you look in Romans 5, through Adam. So we are sin by nature, because we have inherited that sin from our first father, and we are sin by choice. Jesus was born of a virgin, right, by the Holy Spirit. He was not born with original sin by nature, and he did not commit any transgressions while he lived on this earth. He lived a sinless, perfect life. So he is our Passover lamb. He's perfect. 1 Corinthians 5.7 expounds this for us a little bit. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so we see Paul say here that Christ is our Passover lamb. He's been sacrificed. And we see Jesus as he came into Jerusalem on the Passover with his disciples. We see him understanding the theological significance of him being betrayed on the night of the Passover and crucified the next day. That he was brought in. He was that lamb without blemish. That all the rest of the Jews coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover didn't understand that he was the perfect lamb. He was going to be the final, the final say in sin and in death. And so Jesus is our Passover lamb, but also, so we have a lamb and we have leaven, and God talks about these things together, that we must have faith in the blood of the lamb. The Israelites had to have faith in the blood on the posts, in the blood that God provided, and when they did, they were saved, and we must have faith in the blood of Jesus, for when we, when we do, we are saved. Romans 5, 9 says, we have now been justified by his blood. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, Ephesians 1, 7 says. We have redemption through his blood, not, not anything that we have done, but we have the forgiveness of sins because of what he has done. Jesus also suffered to make the people holy through his own blood, Hebrews 13. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, 1 Peter 1. The blood of Jesus purifies us from all sins, 1 John. The, the scriptures, the New Testament is full of this imagery here. And it's a beautiful picture of God substituting himself through Jesus Christ for our sake. Jesus came as a man, died on the cross, so that we might be saved and reconciled back to God. And so we are to have faith in these things, but we're also to remember. And the, the part about the leaven seems to come um, pretty hard afterwards, as God is talking about the, uh, the Passover meal. The, the main components here are the lamb, the roasted lamb, the unleavened bread, and, and the bitter herbs. And the idea of the unleavened bread, for those of you who know or have participated in a Seder dinner, Seder is just Hebrew for order, order of service. It's, it's kind of the more contemporary version. Um, even in Jesus' time, the Passover had changed from the original Passover, and there had been other implements, other parts of it added to it. So there's other prayers, there's the Hallel, there's the, there's the singing of the Psalms, 113 through 118. There are, there are ritual cleansing, ritual hand washing. Um, there was wine added to the, to the table, so there were four cups of wine added, and it was red wine mixed with warm water to signify the blood. And there was other components added to the dinner, to the celebration, to this event, all to remember, right? And the leaven had a purpose in that too. The unleavened bread and the bitter herbs, the bitter herbs were what? The the bitter harshness, the slavery in Egypt. So they wanted to remember that. Because why? We're forgetful. And the unleavened bread was purposeful as well because they typically would add leaven, which is just yeast, right? So I'm not a baker. 
I'm not going to pretend to be. I don't watch baking shows. I just enjoy the products at the end of the baking process, right, typically. Um, so my research on this was very minimal because I ate most of it as I was in Panera, right? Um, so the idea of adding yeast to the dough, so you're making your dough and you add yeast, and it takes just a little bit, right? But it's a fermentation process, and the yeast will eat the sugar, right, and produce alcohol, produce carbon dioxide, and it creates the, the air, right, and you see the dough rising, and it creates the fluffiness and the texture and all the good things that we enjoy about pastries and, and baking. But that takes time, right? My, my grandmother has a cinnamon roll recipe that is infamous or famous or whatever. Or infamous because once you eat it, you just you have to check out for the rest of the day. You're just done, right? You just sit and enjoy um, your slothness because you can barely move. But it's so good going in. Um, but she had this great, and then passed on to my mom, and then my mom's been passing on to Sheila, and so they, when they come out to visit, they do that together, and they make, usually for Thanksgiving, they'll make a big batch of cinnamon rolls. So we leave in the morning, my dad, my brother, my sons and I will, will go out and do something, because if we're there, it's just not helpful. We make too much noise, apparently. We stomp around. You have to be quiet, and I don't know what's real. I don't know if it really needs to, but we can't do those things. Plus, we're just waiting. We just keep asking, when's it ready? All right? Are you done? Are you ready? Can we go? Can we? it. So we leave and we come back and it's all right there and it's beautiful. Right? But I guess the process takes a while because you have to knead the dough and put all the ingredients and then you got to add the yeast and then you got to let it rise. You got to wait, right? It's got to rise and then you punch it back down and then you let it rise again and then you got to bake it and you got to adjust for altitude and all those fun things. And, but it's a process. It takes a little bit of time. And so the, the Israelites had no time they had to be ready to go. They had to eat this meal with their, with, their, with their clothes ready to go, right? With their sandals on and their walking sticks and their belts buckled. They had to be ready to take off at any moment because God was coming. His judgment was coming. And then Israel was going to cast them out. They were going to throw them out, essentially, because they, they wanted no more to do with God and his people. They didn't want to die either. And so there was no time. This was done in haste. This was done because God had a purpose in it. And so they had to leave without... Um, they'd eat unleavened bread, and they had to leave without leaven as well. Any bread or dough they took with them did not have it, and so they did not have the opportunity for that. There's significance here. Um, you know, Depending on who you read, you can read into anything, any type of significance that you want. The scriptural text tells us that it's because of, to remember what God has done, that he brought them out of Egypt, and, he did, and they had to leave in haste, right? The other side of it, if you look at the, the Seder and some of the other uh, symbolism brought into it, leaven in general had a, um, had a connection with, in, even in the New Testament, we'll read a couple passages here, with, with sin, um, with uh, hypocrisy. So there, there's an idea that leaven, something that's bad or something that's influential in a negative way, when it gets in the mix, it just innervates everything, right? It, it, it takes over. So a little bit of leaven will leaven the whole lump. So if someone of bad character, some sinful act can, can actually spread very quickly and it's hard to get out. You can't, once you put leaven in a bread, once you put yeast in dough, you can't, you can't get it out, right? Just a little bit goes a long way. And even the, uh, the Hebrews at that time and a lot of ancient baking practices would use the sourdough method. And I, I do know what that is now. I learned that. The sourdough method, so you, you, you have the, um, the leaven in the dough, and before you put it into a pan to bake it into, into a bread or whatever, you take a lump of it out, and you keep it in a cool, moist place. And then once you start making the next batch of dough, then you add that in, and it spreads throughout. And ultimately, you have the same kind of yeast spores being spread um, through future batches. 
And so just a little bit goes a long way. And the idea of leaven, too, it's, it's typically bitter or sour in tasting. And so unleavened, the word matzo in Hebrew, unleavened, actually means sweet without sourness. And so there, there, was, a, there was a connection with um, bread being unleavened with having the sweetness of, of unleavened bread without all of the sourness, the sweetness of a, of a wholesome life without sin. There was a connection there for, for the Jewish people. And so we see the connection of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread here. The Passover, they're separate, but they, they go together. The Passover is one 24-hour period on the front end, right? And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread is another seven days where there should be no leaven found. And so there's a picture here of remembering God's great salvation through the Passover, of his atonement for sin. And then there's, there's an idea of, of remembering that we are to now walk in light of that truth of who we are in Christ, Right? We are to walk sanctified. We are to remove sin from our life. And so they, they go together in that sense of remembrance. Um, and once again, as far as, as far as leaven, we see Jesus using this, as, as this terminology as well as others in the New Testament. In Matthew 16, when he's talking to his disciples about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Matthew 16, verse 5, he says, When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus, seeing, you know, once again, he's that teacher. He sees opportunities everywhere to teach them something about spiritual truths, and they just want bread, right? So I, I feel much better when I read these stories. I'm, I have a lot of, uh, um, there's, there's a sense of, of belonging to these disciples and some of their denseness. Um, Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we, we brought no bread. So they're thinking, do the Sadducees have a new like, corner bakery or something? Is there some leaven that I should know about? Do they have some special recipe? Like They're just thinking about bread, and Jesus is talking about something else. But Jesus, aware of this, I just, I love our Savior, and I, I, you know, I love that he loved these men and that he loves us, and that even if he puts his head down every couple minutes, just rubbing his forehead, he still loves us. He still goes to the cross for us, right? He says, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered, or the seven loaves or the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? I've already done bread. We're done with bread. I've already figured that out for you guys. I will provide for you. That's not what I'm teaching here. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And in um, Luke, uh, Luke 12, 1, which is a synoptic gospel of the same account, he defines it for us even more specifically. Luke 12, 1. It says, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together and they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So he's defining it for them. There's hypocrisy, the idea of sin innervating everything. Jesus also used leaven in terms of the kingdom of God in Luke 13. So it's not always sin, but there's a, there's a general principle here about leaven innervating everything and to be careful with it. And so they are to put away leaven, they are to put away sin, they are to remember through the memorial of both the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And God was very adamant 
from verses 14, we're back in Exodus 12 now, verses 14 through 20 about, about unleavened bread. He repeated it multiple times. There was something about this that was important. And so he wanted his people to know and to understand. And how many times in the New Testament did we see the idea of putting away sin, putting off the old self, not living in darkness any longer, being who we're supposed to be in Christ, living a certain way, putting these things aside, right? But we're forgetful. And so this feast was meant to, rem- to help remind them of who they are and how they are to live differently. Just as the Lord's Supper that we're going to take here in a few moments is to remind us of who we are, of what Christ has done to proclaim his death, to remember him, not to be forgetful. We forget. We get lost in so many things, right? As God's people, we gather together to remember, to listen to God's word, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We go out to be on mission, hopefully, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. But as soon as we get caught up in secular pursuits, we forget. We're so forgetful. We forget why we're... Have you ever just gone through an entire week and just don't know where the week went or what you even did? Was there any fruit or benefit from what just happened? <laughs> we just get on the wheel and we start spinning and then we jump off when the clock runs out. Right? That's not how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to live purposely, intentionally, in the praise and glory of our Savior who saved us. He saved us to something, to a life of freedom, to walk with him. And so we need to remember. And so we, we take the Lord's Supper together to remember what he did. Because when you stop and you have to think about a Savior who came down from heaven, God himself incarnate as a man, this mystery of the Trinity, this mystery of the incarnation, this holy God, this amazing God who is morally perfect in every way, because of sin he has to judge sin because he's good. And he will only judge sin in, in the perfect way. It is, it is holy judgment. And it requires death. It requires blood. And because he loved us, he sent his son to bleed on the cross. And there's symbolism that, that a lot of scholars talk about with the, the doorpost and the lintel and, and the cross as well. And Jesus' blood on that cross. And he's the gate. And, and all of those things are true, whether or not there's a direct connection in Scripture. There's a lot of good symbolism, a lot of foreshadowing taking place. We've, we've acknowledged that. But without the blood of Christ, you can't be saved. He's the only one. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And so when you have to stop, when you come to a service like this, and we stop and we think about what Jesus has done, and we, and we take that little wafer, that little piece of bread, because Jesus said, this is my body, right? do this in remembrance of me, and we think about his body on that cross broken for us. And we take that cup and we think about his, his body bleeding for us. And that blood which covered us, that appeased God's wrath for those who would believe and put their faith in him. When we think about those things, you can't help but humble yourself. You can't help but sit just quietly and think about your Savior. And all the other Worldly pursuits and all the other problems and all the other things that you brought in that door should start to fade away. And instead of acknowledging self, praising self, focusing on self and all the things that you have to do, you begin to turn back toward him. Right? So there's power in these symbols, in this ordinance of communion, just as there was in the Passover, to remember God's people are stiff-necked people, the scriptures say. Right? They're stubborn and they're forgetful. As soon as God gets them to a place of safety, they forget who got them there. We do the same thing. And so we need to stop for a moment and consider, what has he done for me and why? I'm not just being saved from something, but to something. I'm part of a family now. 
And when we pass that cup around to one another, usually we would pass the plate through the rows. And I, I love that, that imagery because we're, we're passing the cup and the, passing the bread to our, to our brother or sister next to us and we're proclaiming the Lord's death. We're, we're sharing the gospel all over again and we need to hear it again and again to be thankful, to be, have a spirit of gratitude, to want to serve out of that. We, sh- we should have acts of faith coming out of our, our belief. And so we get lost in secular pursuits, we forget, and so God reminds us through this ordinance, through this service. But we also get lost in theological minutiae and pursuits at times. Not that studying theology, there's, no, there's nothing insignificant there, but there's certain things that should be priority, that should be first. We like to grab onto something and argue about it and nitpick things and, and look at what he's doing, what she's not doing, and this person is supposed to be a believer and they're doing this, how terrible, instead of compassionately praying for them and walking with them, helping them, correcting them, exhorting them as we're supposed to do as brothers and sisters. Instead, we point at them and we shun them. But if we understand what we've been saved from because we're remembering, then all that stuff goes away and we have compassion because Christ had compassion on us. And so we take this, this bread and this cup and it's this little thing, but it has a big impact on our hearts and our minds. And maybe some people walk in here who are lost and who are seeking and don't know the Lord and they're, they're crude and they're, they're, they're so darkened in their understanding. And, and, and well, we don't like that very much, right? Well, why are we here then? To worship God and to, right, to know him better and to make him known to others, to be a visible gospel to the world around us, to invite those people in and to teach them truth. Not to just let them sit in their sin, but to tell them God loves you. This is, this is planned. This is, this is who he is. This is what he's done for you. If you receive him by faith, you will be saved. And he will do an amazing work in your life. He will give you a new heart. He will bring you from death to life. You will be with him forever. If we share those things, who wouldn't want that? And if they stay, remain darkened in their understanding and they don't want that, we've done our part. They remain in judgment. God will work on them. But instead, we just want to kind of close the door. We don't want to deal with them. Like, I got enough problems of my own. I don't have to deal with other people's stuff. What did Christ do for you? And so we remember, we get lost in our secular pursuits and our theological minutiae. Remember what God has done for us through his blood. And he calls us to live differently. Let's turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 11. Actually, let's go to Matthew 26. So we know that the first Passover is the, the redemption of his people through the blood of the lamb. They are in their houses. The destroyer is coming. The firstborn of all Egypt has been killed as a judgment by God. And this is, this is God's final execution of judgment over all of the gods of Egypt, as he says in Exodus 12. He's judging, it's, it's his completion of that. He started with the Nile and all the gods of the Nile and he's made his way through to the God of death, even as Pharaoh threatened death of Moses. And so God is finishing what he started and he's completing this so that they know that he is Lord over all creation and that he is Lord over life and of death. And the God of death, Osiris, I was talking to my son Gabe about this. He's been studying ancient Egypt and some of the, the, the pantheon of gods there. And Osiris, the God of death, his, his name actually meant the mighty one or the sovereign one. So he claimed to be sovereign over life and over death. He was one of the major gods of Egypt. And his, and his um, assistant, some say it was his son, many writings say it was assistant Anubis, which of course every god of death needs an assistant, just in case they got to do a coffee run or something goes wrong. I don't know why you need an assistant, right? <laughs> so 
It's ridiculous. The, the cosmic, like Jerry Springer-like nature of this whole thing is unbelievable because actually the God of death is actually betrayed by the God of the storm God set, who is his brother, and he dies. How does the God of death die? That doesn't make any sense to me. And so Anubis has to take over. He's the God of the underworld and of embalming and guides people. And, and what's interesting is Anubis is depicted as a jackal, as the head of a dog. And remember how God said, not a dog will bark against any of my people, right? He's saying, your gods can't do anything. They can't even speak. They will, there will be not a sound from your gods when I come in judgment. And you will see that these are my people and I am their God. And so God is completing all of this and, and he's coming through with this incredible work of judgment by killing all the firstborn of Egypt. And there's this great cry that goes out. And God's people are released and they are free to go worship him. It's a beautiful picture. And this happens, this Passover was not an accident. God wanted it to be a remembrance, even as it was an offering of sin. It was to be a remembrance throughout all generations. And so we fast forward to Jesus' time. And here's the Passover, right? And he comes into the, to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on a donkey. While all the other people are coming to the city, and they're going to the temple courts, and they're trying to find the lamb without blemish, and... and they're looking for their, they're getting ready for the sacrifice, for the celebration. And in Matthew 26, we see the kind of the story unfold here and the institution, Jesus essentially fulfilling the whole purpose of the Passover, fulfilling the whole purpose of this. They're supposed to celebrate redemption through the blood of the lamb. He's the perfect lamb. He's the lamb of God. He's the, the Passover lamb that God has sent once and for all for our sins. And so it says in verse 17, Matthew 26, 17, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes it is written, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it broke and gave it to the disciples and said, Take it, take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so Jesus is, is uh, as he typically would do, he's disrupting things, right? There is an order to service. <laughs> there is an order to these things. And we see even in, in Luke 4, when Jesus sat down and opened the scroll of Isaiah, and he read and he closed the scroll, he said, this day, this, has been, this scripture's been fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the one the scriptures are talking about. I'm here to fulfill all of these things. And with the Passover, as they traditionally would sit, and they would say their prayer, and they would have their first cup of wine, and then they would have this ceremonial cleansing and washing of the hands, Jesus threw that on its, on its tail too. If you look in the Gospel of John, he actually talks about washing the disciples' feet. He takes it a step further, right? Jesus is claiming all these things back for himself. 
And he's saying essentially by, by taking off his garments and washing the disgusting feet of his disciples, even his betrayer, and doing that, that this is to be a life of service, not just about ceremony and ritual. That does not please the Lord. It needs to be purposeful. And so he takes things and he fulfills them and he shows the true heart behind them. And he's doing the same thing now by taking the bread and, and claiming it for himself. And the blood represents, it's a symbol of my body broken for you. Take and eat. And this cup, this wine is going to be a symbol of my blood spilled for you, which is poured out for many. It's the, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He's, he's saying that I am the sacrificial lamb. I am the, the lamb of God who's come into the world. And so he's making that connection and he's changing it. And this is an ordinance now that we as his people are to partake in. And if you turn to 1 Corinthians 11, we'll close with this passage, 1 Corinthians 11. And if the, uh, the, the worship team wants to come on up, and if those who are serving communion, if you would please uh, gather the elements and uh, take your station, um, I'll have, uh, have you distribute in a moment. So 1 Corinthians 11, as Paul was coming into the, or as he was writing to the church in Corinth who had a lot of problems, they were um, essentially kind of one of those wayward sons for Paul who he had to constantly exhort and, and correct. But in verse 17, he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So this is God's people that are gathering together. You guys could just hold the elements and uh, we'll pass out in one moment. Thank you. For in this place, when you come together as a church, I hear that you are, there are divisions among you. And I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Interesting how God purifies his church. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So these people were coming together. They were, they were going through the motions. They were taking the cup. They, they, it wasn't the Lord's Supper. It was a selfish endeavor. For eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What do you have? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? I just realized there was just one word with an exclamation point. I don't remember reading that. What? Right? This is just a great exclamation of, are you, are you kidding me? Do you not remember what God has done for you? And this is how you gather and this is how you treat one another? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. We had given thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is a symbol. It does not impart salvation, right? But it proclaims it. Just like baptism does not impart salvation to the person going under the water, it's a symbol of what God has already done. We're commanded to do these things, to remember, to not forget why we're here. And so when we walk through those doors and we don't like the, this, you know, the coffee bar, it doesn't have, they don't make the exact coffee, even though I'm pretty sure they do. They're amazing in the coffee bar, but maybe they don't have the right creamer. I don't take that kind of sugar, right? Do you have something else for me? Or I don't really like this. Or why is that person doing this? Or my chair is a little, a little lumpier than last week. I don't know. And someone's sitting in it, right? Sitting in my spot. And before you do all of those things, remember why you came in here. What are you here for? 
And when we take communion together, remember, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after, su- after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as, long, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We should take this seriously. We should be mindful. We should be, we consider our hearts. If you have something against one of, a, a brother or a sister in the Lord, you should not receive this morning and go and make, make things right, reconcile with them, and come back and receive next time. This is how serious this is because of what Christ has done for us. Don't take this flippantly. Be mindful to remember all that he's done for you. As you, look at, as you look at the bread and as you consider your life, your life of sin before Christ, you had no hope, you had no salvation, you were darkened in your understanding, you are miserable, and you cried out to God, and you heard the good news of Jesus Christ, who died for your sins, and you put your faith in the blood of Christ, and God saved you. You've been made into a new creation. He's given you a new heart. You should live a different life. And he's coming again. And so we remember what he did and we remember his promises to come back. And so when we look at that bread, we think about all those things and we rejoice. And we repent of our sin and we we thank the Lord. And we look at that cup and we think of our Savior, this perfect God coming down and bleeding on a cross horribly for us. And if you think you're insignificant this morning, look at that cup. He died for you. If you put your faith in him, you will be saved and you get to spend the rest of your life with him, reconciled to a holy God, and your sins are forgiven, and there's no more condemnation, there's no more guilt. It's an amazing picture. And God in his wisdom just, just didn't just give us words, he gave us an act, something that, that, that will engage our senses to remember, just as he did with the Passover. And so consider that this morning. I'm going to ask uh, our ushers to go ahead and pass this out. Uh, this is just for God's people. So if you belong to God, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're a believer in Christ, this is for you. If, if, if that is not your story yet, please let the elements pass you by. Please go ahead and uh, take, take a cup. There's a piece of bread on the bottom cup, and then there's the juice at the top. So you're just grabbing one. And hold those, and we'll take those together in a moment.
partake together, um, just look around the room. I mean, this is, God did this. You didn't do this. Once you were not a people, but now you're a people. Once you're enemies of God and your your sons and daughters of the Holy One, the creator of the universe, you belong to him. How does that change your day? Right? How does it change how you look when you walk out these doors today? How does it change your week? It's all because of his broken body and his blood. Paul says once again, 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. Thank you, Jesus. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Oh, precious is the flow. 
Awesome worshiping with you guys this morning. You all sound great. I had to pull one of my ears out so I could hear you guys sing. It was great. Um, So just in closing, a couple of thoughts. As we all know, we've been inundated with the last four years. Um, There's a big day coming up in our country on Tuesday. So I just want to encourage you guys, number one, to pray, to pray without ceasing. Number two, if you haven't already, vote. There's a lot of people in the world that would love the opportunity to, to have a say in who our, um, our rulers are. And um, number three, just remember, be kind to one another. We are called to be salt and light, and we live in such a toxic environment. Um, you know, rise above, be salt and light, love one another. And in those thoughts, I'm going to read here from Colossians 1. <clears throat> I'm going to try to read it slow, because when you get up on stage in front of people, you start to read fast. But I kind of want these words to soak in. It says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible, invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So pray without ceasing. Vote, love one another, have a great day, great Sunday. You guys are dismissed. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from the Word of God. If you don't have a church home, we invite you to visit Black Forest Chapel in Black Forest, Colorado, near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs. You'll find biblical teaching and authentic worship in an environment that feels like family and friends. Get directions and more information at blackforestchapel.org.